1: Welcome to Two Conversations, recollections of the past and sometimes opinions about the future. Today we have with us
0: Bob Stewart. Bruce Markwell.
1: And I'm Stuart Perks.
2: Bob, I'd just like to ask you, uh, following on from our earlier little talk, um, moving around the world like you have within mm. certain limits, you know, the States and back to New Zealand back to the States and then to Fiji and so
0: forth. Mm-hmm.
2: How did you find all that? And um, you know what made you uh, sort of come back to New Zealand again to, to finish it all up, if you like.
0: Well, um, very good question. Um, I think uh, I became um, quite convinced that, uh, as a result of my AFS year uh, as a seventeen-year-old in the States, that I really wanted to taste, as a lot of young people feel, this. They really want to see what's out there. You know. Um, and so it was very, very strong with me. And I thought, well, um, I can combine it not just as a sort of gap year, but I can actually be doing stuff that will help me in my future. Um, and so after I got my, um, came back from my AFS year, which was a magnificent year, as I've indicated in the first recording, um, well, as I was doing my university at Victoria... I was also looking, you know, looking to up, looking to um, possibilities to go back to the North America, and that was where I where I wanted to go back. Initially, I didn't have much interest in going to UK because I felt I'd had UK throw push down my throat at um, uh, my boarding school, which I didn't particularly enjoy. Um, But the United States seemed just so much more, um, human and positive and, um, stimulating. So, indeed, I I got a scholarship and went back there and travelled by boat, which in itself was quite an experience in those days. Six weeks travel cruise across the Pacific and, um, had two great years in Ohio in a, a university there, um or a, a college, and part of what I did was apply for um, postgrad work, or as they call graduate work, uh, for, to do a master's or PhD, hmm. whichever. So, I, as, as I indicated before, I got into hmm. to Harvard. And so what, what were you doing in
1: Ohio then? You were working there?
0: I was um, doing um, really basically... Because I, I, I had, at one of the, the the questions which I had for myself was, do I want to do medicine or do I want to do psychology? And in those days, the profession of clinical psychology and so on, counselling, wasn't as well established. And um, often the advice you'd get would be, if you wanted to work in um, uh, in psychological area as a therapist or whatever. You you really better off to be a psychiatrist or move move through medical school and so on, so I got caught up in that, which was a complete um, uh, no go for me really because it wasn't what I was interested in. I mean, I was doing a whole bunch of stuff that I I wasn't really interested in. So I took but you me didn't know that until you no you until I done until it. put it in the water yeah, yeah. which is fine. Um, so I had um, that time. Catching up on the pre-med work, which I did at, at the college, and um, but also I was still looking at possibilities of post-grade work in psychology. Hmm. So, how did you fund it then? If you were, uh, I had a scholarship and... from them, very very generous scholarship from the college. That sort of did everything, and hmm. um, enough. I did, my needs were modest and uh, perfectly well um, looked after. Um, and likewise, um, in at Harvard, um, and then I, it was a year master's, which was great. It was all coursework, and um, so it was very concentrated. And then I got my, um, I then looked around for jobs, and the first job was in Ottawa in Canada at Carlton University, and so there off, off I went to that. And, and what were you doing there? I was a lecturer, a lecturer? in psychology. And then I had a year at McGill University Medical School after that, which again, you know, I thought I I wanted to do the medicine and that was clear that I wasn't, that wasn't my thing. And um, so I then um, um, applied for jobs in psychology and on the basis of the master's I was getting offers throughout the States. I could have gone to a number of different places, but I thought, well... There was a delay in getting the my um, immigration transfer to the United States, and I had about four months, sort of which nothing to do particularly, and no, you know, not really much in, in the way of income. So I thought, well, I'll just go back to New Zealand and have a little holiday and so on, and meanwhile, this other thing will come through. And, and at that point, then I got my Massey thing, and I also had an offer from the Michigan University. Your Massey thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I applied to Massey for a job, okay. which I got. So, yeah. so how old were you? You'd done a fair bit of studying by then. How old were yeah, you? Yeah, I was about 24, 25, okay. something like that. Yeah. And it was interesting because the baby boomers were coming through, and, well, you, you, and um, they, it was a good time, actually, to be looking for jobs in academia because... Um, there was we, I, I sort of predated the, the baby you know boomers I, and so I was kind of that much ahead of them and but they needed, you know, they were coming in droves to the universities yeah. Well the students didn't Western. have to pay
2: fees back in those days yeah. either, no. did they? So that sort of gave a, and so there was a false a um, big demand reading, really. yeah.
1: yeah,
0: You're talking about 1967
1: Yes yeah. So that was
0: one of the very early days of Massey a university It was indeed and we were It, it interestingly um, I had four different venues for my office when I was at Massey and the first one was um, at um, um, oh, Kesha Birch um, and then we were moved uh, we went to the, the old uh, premises of the um, Victoria University which are now standing idle in Haukavatu and we then went to Farorata, where I was have many memories of Fororata where we meet as Rotarians. Um, my office was there, and I did all my lecturing, all my lectures and tutorials and so on were in the back of the uh, Um And then we went into the Social Science Town, and, and it was when I was in the Social Science Town that I um, got my next move to. Uh, back to Canada again I'll throw in oh. an anecdote
1: there yeah. I came to Mass in 1978 from England yeah. and there's a sign at the bottom of the social science tower saying first occupied and I think it was 1972 yeah. and given all the student protests and stuff at the time I was at university the idea of a university building saying first occupied was <laughs> 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 oh, <yeah. Anyway. laughs>
0: yes that's right but um, was, it was generally a good time the only thing I didn't like at Massey of the day was it was very authoritarian in some ways some respects because you had to go and get permission to get two copies mm. if you wanted to photocopy yeah. something you had to apply to the head of department
1: and it was your namesake who was the vice chancellor uh,
0: doc- Dr. Stewart Dr. that's right yeah. mm. actually there's um, I'm wondering whether I should give us a brief anecdote about Dr. Stewart um, why not um, I I was, I was, as I say, with my experience. I've sort of got a bit of a perhaps unusual combination of entrepreneurship and academia, and so I was always, you know, looking for academic um, entrepreneurial things. And um, I even quite early, I sort of got into the property thing. And the the, Massey is to blame for me getting into the property thing because when I arrived, they said, look. Um, we will give you a 90% guarantee to buy a house in Palmerston North. And, and so I was a bachelor at the time, so I said, well, is it possible for me to build two units? And I, I'm just a, I'm a bachelor, I don't have any family or anything. I'll live in the one unit and then I'll rent the other. So I duly did this in, in, um, um, and built, I got commissioned it to, to be built, and they provided a ninety percent guarantee, and the the cost of building was much less um, than actually what I received money. So I actually made money on building this thing, and I, as much money as I earned as a lecturer for the first year, mm. I'd made in one real estate deal, and it was totally painless. And I also had a house to live in, um, and it, and I sort of got in Palmerston North. I I've had quite extensive holdings, I've, and actually, there was another lecturer and myself, and I won't identify who it was. We, 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 we kind of teamed up, and um, we had quite a lot of properties around Palmerston North, which didn't intrude on what we were doing. We were all doing our. Massey certainly wasn't being mm-hmm. shortchanged, but we got a lot of fun out of it, and it was actually did did quite well.
2: Mm. I'd like to leave that particular subject just, sure. just there at this stage, Bob, because there are a couple of other things I would like to go back to. Mm-hmm. You you commented about your boarding school years, that you didn't really enjoy them very much no. at all. Um, no, Could you just elaborate and tell sure. us why no. and, and what yes. happened?
0: And well, um, I think part of the, um, as uh, in those who had the first uh, recording, my father died when I was seven, and uh, which was a very tragic event, uh, because I felt, even though as a very young child, I was very close to him. So my mother remarried when I was 12, and I got shipped off to boarding school, um, probably in the way of it, you know, and we, we all did, actually, my sister and brother. So I probably didn't get a very good introduction to being shipped off kind of thing to a a very. Um, so, what
2: sort of age were you then? I was early twel-
0: teens. Early teens, yeah, mm. sort of 13, something like that. Yeah. So, um, and I, I wasn't the right personality for. Um, it was all sport, and I'm not particularly good at sport. Um, um, in fact, I'm bloody hopeless at sport. <laughs> but, so that was kind of a not a good thing, actually, if you're in that situation. Mm. Um, I've got the gift of the gab, um, and I'm quite resourceful and quite smart, and so I sort of avoided some of the worst things that could have happened to me. Were you, Um, would you
2: say you were bullied, or...?
0: Oh, I generally managed to sort of find some way out of it, but I, you know, I sort of, um, I, I think probably, um... I, I, it didn't help me that I wasn't. I had this hatred of sport. Yep. I mean, it's quite interesting. Here I am. I'm eighty-three years old, and I will go and turn off the sports thing. I have such a strong aversion to sport. Mm. And actually, my wife Catherine is a very sporty lady. You know, she was actually when when she was young. She was a, a brilliant um, uh, athlete um but she unfortunately had an accident and so she quite often wants to hear it but anyway it's funny these things but um um so i didn't it wasn't a very good match but it, more fundamentally um it it was a pretense um as i it 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 encouraged my interest uh in secondary education because i had a horrible experience at christ college but i had a wonderful experience when i went on my year at, um, in America as an AFS scholar.
2: And roughly what sort of age were you then?
0: I was about 17. 17, yeah. 18. yeah. And that contrast proved to be um, very productive to me in terms of thinking about And I wrote a book on adolescence in New Zealand um, which was used as a text for a number of years and um, one of them was actually I talked about how I had got this interest in adolescence and how do we how how do we get adolescents to be the best that they can be you know that that's always been my passion you know how do you, how do you create the conditions whether you're a parent or a teacher to to help people to flower help their personalities to flower you know rather than being like flowers that sort of wilt how do you actually encourage them and
1: and how Theater. And
0: how do you do that? Well, I think that you've got to actually, I mean it sounds corny, but really look for the look for what they're doing right, you know, find stuff that find people doing something right and then praise them. I mean, it, you can't go much beyond that, really. And I think teachers now realize that much more, I think. I mean, there's been it's actually quite heartening to see how much more humane and well, not just humane, but how much more effective and how much more smart teachers are, you know, because why would you want to be a teacher trying to help children, young people to grow and not be smart about how you do that? I mean, it just, it just doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, why would you do stuff <clears throat> that actually works against what you're supposed to be doing? So,
1: so how does that equate with the reported dropping in standards of uh, those schools?
0: Well, it depends how you assess um, what What are the objectives of... I mean, it seems to me, yes, the, the academic... And, and I'm not convinced that it's a material drop anyway, but um, in academic standards. But that's not the only criteria. The, the most important criteria is, are people, as a result of their adolescence and their schooling, able to live a productive um, life... Where they feel good about themselves and they are good to others, you know, because a lot of conflict that in marriages and, and in society generally are when people are basically stunted emotionally, and um, there should, you know, it just makes sense for society to be more sensible about how you actually create. Um, people who are in themselves content that they can deal with stress effectively and there are many good I, this is why I have very great um, passion about how to communicate um, the abilities to reduce stress and to deal with frustrating situations um, which is all, it's all a skill it's, and it's actually not and a lot of the stuff that I've developed myself. I've never read in anywhere, and so one of my life goals now is actually to write that stuff down. I, I use, um, well, for example, whenever I feel stressed, I actually stop breathing. It sounds quite bizarre, but I hold my breath for as long as I possibly can, and then exhale. And it's as though the body's saying, "Hey, what are you doing? You've got to keep breathing." You know, I mean.
2: You do this intentionally. Intentionally, I, mean. I deliberately
0: stop breathing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, take an, I expi- I've taken, I taken, I just breathe normally, mm-hmm. and then I stop breathing. And I mean, after all, people who do diving can actually hold their breath for quite a considerable period, and you can do that. Eventually, your your lungs are trying to force their way in and out, trying to force you to, to, to bring in, in breath. And then eventually it's it's a sort of a survival thing that um, the, the the body is in a self-preservation mode and it cuts off all of the, the sort of unnecessary kind of stuff that you're doing. And um, you, surprisingly, it totally I find it totally reduces stress and then eventually and then you, you take a breath and then you find then that you're on your whole level of emotional arousal, whether it's being upset or um has has gone to a lower level. So um is is
1: is that like I seem to recall the idea of uh, you've got a young child who's throwing a tantrum or whatever. Yes. I and you just say, Okay, take a deep breath. Yeah. And just wait. Is that they, sort
0: of, well they, the, the advice they seem to give is that you should breathe and I think that's actually wrong I've, I've seen it in a lot of these sort of self-help books um, they, I think what they should be doing is doing what I do because if, you, if you're a runner and you, you've got to get out there and you, you know you, 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 you get as much oxygen into yourself by breathing and so in other words you're f- in fl- you know, sort of fight or flight um, motion but if you're actually trying to cut down on that adrenaline um, overload, the thing to do is to actually bring it down, so that you're you're in a kind of uh, meditative, almost sleeping type of mode, and then the body can kind of recover itself, you know, and you don't get that adrenaline rush, which is which you need. Mm. Uh, in many cases in an emergency we need that adrenaline rush, but you don't need it that over um, so that that's where the the passion about psychology is in that it's it's so important to for people to actually know this stuff you know because it makes i mean particularly in a state in a a time where there's huge um, anxiety and huge um, Stress, in in sort of just the news we get, and let alone the people who are suffering all of this in mm. in um, Ukraine and so on, and um, uh, and and these having these skills, of course, it doesn't. Um, it just enables people to deal with stress and challenging situations much better than they otherwise would. You know,
2: mm-hmm. that's interesting because you know quite often, as you say, when a child takes a, a tantrum their parents or the mother or father will say to them, you know, just take a deep breath, just take a deep breath. And you yeah, say, no, think don't take a deep breath. you saying exhale.
0: That's right, exhale is, and hold it. Mm, yeah.
2: Which is quite different.
0: Than, it is different. Yeah. Mm.
2: Well, can I just, um, you know, uh, call that one to a little bit of a hold at the moment and um, just talk about, or if you could talk about, um, the effect your father's death had on you and uh, yes. um, the things that you did from there.
0: Well, um as I said, I I, a young boy at the time. I was a young boy, and he was sick for I was from my he died at seven, my age seven, and I, he was sick from for two years, and so I was really five was was it, but I can remember he his job was teaching, a distance education through the correspondence school. He was and he went round to, farm children, and he was very very dedicated, um, and he would have had, a, would be just totally on in sync with me in terms of the bringing the best out of people you know this was his whole philosophy and that and we even though for just a short time we benefited from that i mean an example of this is he was quite fascinated with grafting uh fruit trees and um i was here i would have been all of two and a half or three and i was absolutely entranced by this you know and um he was explaining, you know, what he was doing, and and uh, you know, I was really interested in the, in this. And it's one of the most vivid memories in my life is mm. that that interaction, and uh, lots of things like that, where he was he was um, he was able to um, cultivate the curiosity of a very young child, mm. and um, just make you excited about the world. I mean, he was a natural teacher. Right. I mean, he was. Which is what a teacher should be able to do, is just create that magic mm. about teaching.
2: So, by the time you were around about 12, you had been able to see the fruits of those craftings? And, yes, and, what was and that was quite precious. And that, yes, I was going to say.
0: To see that, you know, that I'd done that with them, and I've got pictures of them with, and Timaru, with the um, little um, boats that they had, you know, and. Um, you know it's it's really it was, it was really and then sadly um as I say, my mother um got remarried, and the um the the chap that she remarried was not um we had nothing in common basically oh, okay. he was um just a oaf, basically um
2: did he have a farming background
0: he was a farmer he'd been he was born on the farm and right okay done, done nothing else but um his son. Because uh, my stepbrother is um, actually we get along extremely well, and he somehow got the. My mother was also very um, sensitive, and she was a painter, and she's been a wonderful mum, you know, for us all, for three children, her three children, and also for her her fourth um, child, which was John. And John and I get along very well, and he somehow managed to combine the best of his two parents. He's a very good farmer, and he's produced three sons who were all committed to being farmers. Right. They're all there, and they've all found wives, and um, they went to Lincoln. They've all got degrees in agriculture, and they're really quite um, onto it. They've he's He travelled... Um, he he, he 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 When I came back from my AFS scholarship, he said he's told me John John has that um, that was what triggered his interest in travel, and he and his wife she's married to a Dutch um, lady, and they've travelled all over the place, you know, with camper vans, and they're still doing it. I mean, and the three sons are a delight, their and their wives, their. Um, we have a very good relationship with them. So, uh, But the, the dad, he was a little bit of a, a limited person, I have to say, in fairness.
1: This is part two of four. Tune in next week for part three. Thank you for listening to Manoa Two Conversations. This and other recent programs can also be found on the Manoa Two People's Radio website. And a range of programs is also available on the two Heritage website of the Palmerston North City Archive. The address for that is ManawatuHeritage.pncc.govt.nz.
0: If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the kiwi fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favorite show.